to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. All of it is delivered in 50 minutes or less because you don't have time to waste. Let's get started. So, welcome podcast listeners. Today I am joined by my very good friend and genius fundraiser, Cleo Cavallo, who is going to talk to us today about fundraising and the nonprofit. So, Cleo, tell us just a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in fundraising? Thanks, Rhea. It's great to be here and talk to you and your listeners today. So, my journey into fundraising was not the more the most traditional one. I had had about six years of work experience. I had been working in nonprofit. I had worked at a for-profit education company. I had gone back to grad school. And I was like, I think I have all the skills to be a fundraiser. But every job I saw out there, oh, you need seven years and a proven track record. And so as I started on that job search, I you know, was lucky enough to meet Mike O'Brien and Carolyn Kimmo, who were leading iMentor at the time. And I joined them and had a conversation and learned more about some of their fundraising opportunities. And they were looking for a director of development at the time. They'd had a long search. They weren't finding candidates that felt like a good culture fit. And they said, you know, while she doesn't have the formal background, I think she has the right core competencies. We're going to take a bet on her. And I always say we took a bet on each other and it ended up being a great uh, partnership. And so worked at iMentor for six and a half years where I was the first ever director of development moved into the managing director of development and role shortly thereafter and was charged to build out the entire development function at the organization across multiple revenue streams, helped to launch and run two growth capital campaigns. And six and a half years later, we had scaled from under a million dollar organization to well over seven million from an annual fundraising standpoint and cumulatively raised over 50 million for the organization. So it was a fast track way uh, to learn fundraising. You know, every year there was different than the year before. And so I was able to grow and rise to that challenge. But I think that's a very hard thing to do. And then, you know, after having that background, I was like, I really do enjoy fundraising and I want to continue to test it in another environment and went on to lead fundraising at New Classrooms, where, again, was sort of the first ever and asked to build out the team. There were, you know, differences and similarities between the two organizations. But as I think about the sort of 10 years I had in leading and growing teams, it was really working with dynamic entrepreneurs and scaling very rapidly the fundraising function within an organization and as much as possible really figuring out what is the right revenue strategy and ensuring it's sustainable for the organization. So so there are a couple questions I have there. So I feel like fundraisers generally come in two different camps. There are the people who have gone to formally learn about fundraising, maybe have a master's in fundraising, then people like me and you who kind of learned from experience. Do you have an opinion about which is preferable when looking at a development director? I think it would depend somewhat on the budget size. So, you know, right now I have my own business called Raya's Partners, and I was working with a partner organization on their VP of growth strategy and development search. Basically, they're head of fundraising. $20 million organization, and we had two candidates. And one had a formal fundraising background, having led fundraising at a charter school. A large charter management organization, I should say. And the other one had more of a business development background. And 
there's definitely, you know, strong case to be said, business development and fundraising have so many similarities. And again, that's more the core competency sort of approach to hiring. And I think that my, I mean, my strong recommendation was to go with the person who had the proven track record. Mm -hmm. Now we had two great candidates. And so that's like, right, that's not a, like we weren't in a pinch, if you will. So I think more and more, if it's a head of fundraising role and they're asked to raise upward of one and a half million to two, I do think you need someone who's had some experience with fundraising. I do think when you are looking at organizations where there's key functions, like a director of corporate partnerships, and it's a bigger budget size, I'd be more open to testing someone who doesn't have that formal background as long as there is someone that can sort of coach and mentor them to sort of like, what are the, the skill sets, mindsets that you need to be a successful fundraiser? So let's dig into that a little bit because I feel like I meet a lot of executives who don't really enjoy fundraising, even though obviously it's a big part of a lot of people's jobs. And certainly with boards, I hear a lot of like, I will do anything, but don't ask me to fundraise. So what is it that you like about fundraising and how do you share that love and enthusiasm with others? I mean, for me, I've been, you know, I've been working in nonprofit for over 17 years. And the thing that has driven me is that I believe that every child, no matter where they're born, what their zip code is, should have all the resources to reach their highest potential. So for me, it's always been about the mission of the organization. You know, I don't think I could be a fundraiser for every cause. While I think most every cause out there is really important and I admire the work of so many organizations, I'm not, if you will, a hired gun who could just go raise money for a hospital, right? So I think for me and I think for the fundraisers out there and the executive directors and the CEOs that I most admire as fundraisers, it is just a deep belief in the mission first. What else I love is being able to build relationships and building authentic relationships and trying as much as possible to not feel that I am lesser than the person that I am cultivating and stewarding and building, you know, their involvement with the organization. I think that we often feel that we're asking for money and it's, you know, that because that person might have more resources than we do, that there's a dynamic that exists there. And for me, it's like, I don't want that to play out that way. So I think that it is about trying to level that playing field. You know, I believe that fundraising is strategic. I believe it can be creative. I think it is intellectual, but oftentimes I don't think people approach it that way. And that's why I think either there's burnout or fundraising just isn't done well. And so when I've had the opportunity and I have in my career to be able to do it, that's been really amazing. So talk to me about, I mean, you've been in nonprofits for 17 years and a good chunk of that in fundraising specifically. How have you noticed the field changing over the last, say, 10 years? Yeah, it's such a good question. I was thinking about that on my way here. You know, in my early days that I mentor and sort of, I should say in my tenure there, there was this sort of emerging thing that was happening in the sector sort of for organizations similar to I mentor that sort of had an idea and how do you take an idea and build an institution. So, you know, building upon what universities and hospitals and school, you know, schools do, you know, capital campaigns. And so there was this movement, I'd say, sort of around 2008 to create what they were calling growth capital campaigns. And so they were helping to fuel the organization, but it wasn't necessarily bricks and mortar. It was like, we aspire to reach 
20,000 students in the next five years. And to do that, we need to build capacity in our curriculum development. We need to invest in a world-class evaluation. And so building out these campaigns, and I think that was something that was really innovative and for so many organizations helped them to grow very significantly in a quicker period of time. You know, as I work with organizations right now and with my business, I think we sort of, there's many of them who still are doing or want to do growth capital campaigns. I, I think I have the question is, are donors fatigued by that? Where it felt new and fresh probably 10 years ago. I think that's a question I have. You know, there's, you know, we're at a place, well, Maybe a month ago, we could have said we were at a place where the economy has been in a good point for a while. And so there's more, if you will, capital to go around. And so in the years that I was fundraising, there was ups and downs, you know, and having to fundraise through 2008 uh, to really 2011 when things rebounded. So in some ways, I think it, it was easier to fundraise in those times because there weren't as many people doing these innovative approaches to raising huge amounts of money. But I also think that there's new people coming out and thinking about big, bold ideas and putting some serious dollars behind it. So let's talk about that, because you and I have talked a little bit about what, where the next generation of philanthropy is coming mm-hmm. from. And, you know, I think we, we see a lot of the traditional funders, like, you know, folks who've worked with Robin Hood and so forth, really investing and doubling down on the causes that they love. And yet, you know, where is this new generation of philanthropists? Who are they and how do we try to get them before they fall in love with the thing that they fall in love with? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I keep pushing all the organizations I'm partnering with to like for us to have this as a conversation because I keep seeing the same names over and over again. And at this point, some of these people have been philanthropists for upward of 20 years. And so they probably have one main organization, maybe two, two to three, you know, but that they're supporting and really supporting in a deep, meaningful way. And so there is there the question is, you know, do they have more room to, you know, bring others on and especially at a point in their life where they're probably not bringing in as much revenue up from themselves for themselves personally as they had earlier in their career. And I think the thing is that to think about that next generation of philanthropists, it's definitely, you know, it's my peers. It's the sort of age range of 35 to 45. And so there is an education piece that comes into play and it is a longer game because I think some of these people, you know, $10,000 is a really big gift for them. And even if they could give much more than that, like that feels like it hurts still. And you have to sort of be there and take the journey with them, but know that there's real potential in the long term to sort of get those people to invest in your organization. So I think it requires a ton of sort of research and figuring out what is for your organization the ideal donor profile. And once you have that profile, who are the people that sort of align and whether that's already people existing in your network or using that profile to guide you and think about how to open doors to other networks. But this is the thing. So many organizations have these really aggressive goals year over year that they don't give themselves that sort of time to build the runway that could then allow them to have much more sort of exponential growth in three to four years time if they've put the right seeds in place today. So I don't like, I can't, I wish I could name like, and it's this sector and it's this person and There's a lot I'm still thinking through around that, but I think it is more about, you know, sort of my message is like to board chairs, to boards, to EDs, to CEOs, to sort of people that are leading development shops. You know, yes, we want to serve as many students, as many, you know, build as many schools, you know, save the environment, all those things you want to go quickly on. But some of the revenue, just the 
that might need to slow a little to then be able to accelerate again. And do you think that younger philanthropists are want different kinds of information than older philanthropists? I mean, I think that there's right the, in the sort of when you said in the 10 years when I was sort of leading both, you know, both that I mentor and new customers, I think it was at the, you know, it was at the real sort of, you know, where donors were becoming much more metric focused. I mean, it was, it happened before them, but it was sort of, if you will, at the peak of that. I think there is a, you know, I think that this next generation of donors, I think they're still going to want those same metrics. I hope that that can sort of, the pendulum shouldn't swing all the way back to where it had been, but there is some sort of middle ground because I think that some of the metrics are not allowing the organizations to innovate and sort of do the research and development to actually get the model right. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming more and more restrictive, even when it's, if you will, a general operating sort of unrestricted gift from an individual. You know, I think that, right, there's something around the millennial generation and how they will choose to give once they have more significant means. And I don't feel like I know exactly what that is, but I'm sure that's just because of the way that generation behaves, if you will, and operates, that there's going to be something very different that they need and want than sort of this, the generation that we're sort of looking at when we think about right now and sort of how we build them up over the next few years. I have a question that's a little bit out of left field, but, you know, I think that there's been a lot of ink spilled about this entrepreneurial world that we're now living in. And I'm wondering if you think that means that traditional nonprofits will change into maybe more hybrid or social good enterprises or B Corps Mm -hmm. or think about revenue generating aspects to their business in order to supplement or replace fundraising. I mean, I think that that's definitely, I think the whole revenue generating thing that organizations really in the past, yes, sort of the, yeah, past 10 years have been trying to figure that out. I, you know, the organizations where I worked, both of them had a revenue, you know, earned revenue as part of the model. Some were more successful than others. I, I still think earned revenue isn't easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still, a, it's actually business development. And so it's still the cost to raise a dollar on that side you have to sort of see, is that more cost effective than raising the dollar from private philanthropy? I do think that, you know, to the point that sort of the boom in entrepreneurism, sort of both in nonprofit and in for-profit right now, and sort of these new emerging companies, that there is going to be more and more of a blend. And I think that goes to the point around millennials, right? And that was something I have read, like they want the companies where they're working, not just to be the, you know, here's the mission of the company, but that there's more of a blend between like, here's what we do as a company and here's the social good, and that it feels more holistic and that it is not a top-down approach, not saying like, here are the five charities that we're supporting. Really, how do we as employees become more sort of bottoms up and say this is the stuff that we're, we, we want to be involved with? So like that, that feels like maybe that's a little more of a fuel corporate philanthropy. But I think that will impact how these people are giving personally as well. And I think that, yeah, it is sort of when I think about that, this next generation of people that could be potential major givers, it all, it is, I'm always like, oh, what about this company that just started? And that's such a great idea. There's so much similarities in terms of the startup model that, at least in the organizations where I've worked, that I feel like those people would add a tremendous amount of value in terms of their leadership and the right the tough stuff that comes with starting something, that it feels like they can immediately sort of uh, support an ED, a CEO that is like, this is you know year five of my organization. How do we scale it? How do we think right. about that next sort of five years yeah. um, in terms of our growth? And you know what does that mean from the talent perspective of our organization? So that's maybe less on the revenue 
side of the house, but you know, it's still about how do you get someone involved and invested and engaged in a authentic way. So interesting. I'm going to change tack a little bit here because a lot of my listeners are nonprofit folks. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen nonprofits make in fundraising? You know, I think that not investing in the systems and the operations earlier on. Mm. I feel like so many organizations that I've been partnering with lately, like the sort of the data management, which is like not the sexy stuff, but like super important, right? It's year 10, year 15, maybe even year 20. And they like haven't figured that out. And so you've kind of just lost tons of information on people. And there hasn't been great relationship management because of that. Mm-hmm. So as I think about, right, and, you know, for organizations that are smaller budget sizes, and they might not have as big of a development staff, I do think it's super important that they have someone that can be front facing, that can lead the strategy, can help to execute on it. But I would also say having someone to sort of support the operation side of it, because listen, if a donor isn't, you know, cared for and properly sort of like acknowledged and moved through the, you know, process, if you will, like they're not going to continue to invest. And so there is some of that back end stuff that you need to sort of get right. I think that, you know, when I was in a, you know, I helped an organization today interview for a director of individual giving. We're like, I think a lot, and this person was great that we interviewed, but I think a lot of people that are in the fundraising world, like they sell you a good game, but they, on day one, they come and you as executive director, like, what did, what just happened? Like, this right. is not the person we interviewed. Oh, this, I've been there, girl. I've been there. <laughs> this person cannot even pen an email for me, right? right. They can't even get these if you will, tasks done. And so, you know, listen, like it's hard to screen people, but I do think that that is a big mistake that you read a resume, you sort of are enamored with someone, but you got to look below the surface with any position you hire, not just development folks, but because it is an external facing role often that they're more able to sort of sell themselves and promote them themselves in a way that maybe other positions don't do. But I feel like that I feel I hear that time and time again. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the common refrain I hear from everybody, which is it's so hard to hire a good development mm-hmm. director. And in fact, I would say I've heard that folks have found it harder to hire a good development director than a good executive director. So mm-hmm. could you say a little bit about why you think it's so hard to find a good development director? And we can tag onto that. Yeah. Where, where can I find them? Like, where do the <laughs> unicorns live? Why is it so hard? You know, I think, again, the question is harder when I don't know exactly, right? I'm going to give a general answer, but like when I don't know budget size and sort of all those things and how involved is an ED in sort of development. I think what makes it so hard is that often you're looking for someone who can be big picture, create a strategy. Okay, this is fiscal year 19. We are going to make a big bet and we're going to try to expand our individual giving program. We're going to launch major gifts and here's how we're going to do it. And so they have these, right? They, they can think big and sort of chart out what the fiscal year is going to look like and then have the tactics to then implement mm. on those ideas and then manage the people, if there are people, to actually support that work. And so, you know, most often there is somewhat of a development director and whatever, like more of a junior role in some of the sort of smaller organizations. And so, One, can you have someone that can lead strategy and execute? That's hard to find. Can you have someone that can manage up to the ED, to the board? That's hard. Can you have someone that manages, you know, the people that are their direct reports? 
you know, so the management piece is for real with directors of development. And can they manage across the organizations? Can they build strong working relationships with your head of programs, with your finance head? Because if that stuff isn't working, like it's bad, right? right. And so I think that those are the things that I would point to. You know, I hear this so often and it like pains me but they just don't follow up and follow through. I'm mm. like, but your job is to, you know, be taking someone and meeting with them and making them feel really cared for. And I hear that time and time again, well, my head of development, like, I don't even think she ever properly thanked this person. And so I think that there's, that, that might go to the, you know, ability to manage their own time. And mm. I think being highly organized is probably one of the most important things for when you're looking at, someone working in development at all levels. To answer your question, where can you find them? So, you know, I think that it's always thinking of a succession plan if you can within your organization. So that's why like a development shop of one is kind of hard because then you don't have other people underneath them. So I'm not saying that, you know, you have a development manager and your development director leaves that that person automatically can assume that role. But could you start to think about what is a succession plan and how you build someone maybe at a manager level up over time to assume a more senior role within development? Because the the truth is it's an amazing career you know mm-hmm. I think that there's so much there's so many skills in there and it's right you'll never be at a loss for finding a job and just continuing to promote that I mean I think you also have to acknowledge that it's an incredible amount of stress on people leading this work and that's why you know while my experience has always been scaling fundraising rapidly year over year and I think on average I was doing about 20% growth year over year 10 years later, I was exhausted from that. So I do think there is something like, I don't think I would be great leading a department that was flat forever. Mm. But I think, is there some sort of ability to slow some of that growth in some years so that you can kind of catch up and think about development and fundraising for your organization more at an 18-month cycle versus the fiscal year cycle? Because I think that's what really starts to burn people out. You know, I had great success. There's one person in particular that I brought over from the program team, and she worked on the development team at iMender for about three years and then went on to the New York Public Library and then went on to a few other organizations. And she's really made a great career for herself in fundraising, but it's because you know, I'm not, I don't want to credit myself because she had other people along the way, but I saw that she had an interest. She was a program coordinator and I mentor and I took a site, a donor on a site visit and she was just great with that donor. And she's like, I'd like to learn more. Like, what is it that you actually do in fundraising? And that was something I always did throughout my career is that if there was a program person that wanted to learn more, I would take them to coffee. If I felt like there were program people that were ambivalent or didn't trust the fundraising process, I would also tackle that head on and try to educate them as much as possible and be honest that, you know, some of this, right, some of our donors might not share our exact beliefs and language that we use in the way we talk about our students. That was definitely something that over time struggled with. So I don't have the answer like where they exist. I think there is something to be said that the sector needs to start to figure out a little bit more how to think about building the sort of pipeline of future fundraisers. Mm -hmm. I haven't figured it out, but it's something maybe next year I tackle with my business, but it is something that's top of mind for me for sure. And let's talk about that too, because I think one thing that, you know, we're so keenly aware now of diversity, equity, and inclusion at all levels Mm -hmm. of leadership. And I've just noticed that 
it tends to be noticeably missing in the higher levels of development. Can, yeah. you, can you speak to that? Yeah, that's. I think that's a really great question. And it's something that, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think that it is hard to find people in development that are people of color. I don't know the answer to it. I think that I've always tried. And I think trying, like, that's why when you think about internal candidates, that can be a little, like, that can be a good pipeline to have a more diverse you know, more of a diverse pipeline of, of people. You know, I think that that is something that, again, we that goes to, like, we need to expose everyone across an organization to fundraising so that they learn more about it and they can opt in, if you will, and you sort of, whether they're participating more in a volunteer way or if they have, if no one has extra time in nonprofit, but, like, if they have extra time to take on a side project and you as a sort of head of development being really purposeful around sort of developing relationships within the organization with people that are from diverse backgrounds. You know, it's interesting. I'm working with an organization right now, and they, I mean, their senior management team is, in, like, it's just in one of the most diverse senior management teams I've ever seen, and they're, they've just rebuilt their development team and you know their MDD is a person of color and two of their most senior positions are people of color and I don't think I have any other examples of an organization at all levels that is as uh, diverse and sort of showing donors that you know right these people that represent our students are also very senior within the organization so I think yeah there's a lot that we need to solve for and that's something that I've never I haven't had great success in doing that as I've led teams, but it's been really inspiring to see some other organizations right now that have been much more successful and really strong people leading the fundraising functions. Right. I feel like I could go in so many directions here, but we're kind of wrapping up. Something that I wanted to ask you was, you know, I think sometimes boards and EDs make the mistake of thinking you hire a development director and like money will just fall from the sky. I like to call it the development yeah. fairy. Like uh-huh. the development fairy yeah. comes and wins her wand and money comes, which we know is not true. And we know, you know, nobody can actually do that. But on the flip side, I wonder what is a reasonable time frame to be able to assess the efficacy and outcomes of a development director knowing that, you know, grants take time to come yeah. in, gifts take time to come in and so forth. So I think, so I'm going to answer in two ways. I think to really see if this person, I think a development director probably needs a full fiscal year to understand the cycle, the way things come in, the high volume points, the times when you can sort of play catch up and sort of build capacity within the team. But I also think you're going to know within 90 days if this person for real or not. Mm-hmm. And what are the indicators? So, I mean, I think one, so many organizations don't do robust onboarding. So it's on you as the organization to make sure that your head of development, no matter how senior they are, gets the full picture. And so that's on the ED and it's on the CEO to really invest Invest the time to explain every donor relationship, talk through every board member, ensure they're reading all the materials, allowing them to do what I feel like I get to do so often right now is do the data, like look at the data and do the analysis. And so something that I do as part of most of my engagements is I do a SWOT analysis. And so why wouldn't your uh, development director be able to do that within their first 90 days? I think you'll be able to understand how their mind works and what they're picking up on and what they're not. And does that align with your beliefs around development? Mm-hmm. And I think also thinking about having them to create a development plan early on in their 
sort of 90 days with the organization because there you're going to think, okay, this is aligned to my vision, but also how are they articulating both the strategy and how are they then going to execute on that strategy? So you have a document to sort of go back to one so that you align throughout the course of the year, but it's a real work product that you're going to be able to assess within those first 90 days, right? So if all, if those two things, you know, the deliver, if, if those two deliverables are satisfactory, if you will, and those first 90 days, you're like, all right, good to go. I still think you're not going to fully know until you're a year in, but those will make you feel much more confident. I also think that it's really hard, but like just letting them get out there and talk to people, but do it with people that you can get feedback. And so if you're, whether it's, I think going and having it with board members, because right, your board is your, you know, those are some of your most important donors and just like hearing the feedback from the board and you're like, if the board members are not feeling this person, like they are really good, you know, right? Because donors are very similar to, right? It's a similar profile of person. So I think those are some easy ways to assess early on, but you also have to let this person have this space and like understanding where your organization's at, because there's a lot of people that are excellent fundraisers and they're put into really tough situations. Maybe it's the development fairy, but like organizations that are in a turnaround state, like they are not going to be successful in year one. They will maybe be able to get things in a better place within 18 months, but you just being really honest and where the organization's at and what can, what is realistic to move within a period of time. So those are some thoughts I have around sort of assessing the efficacy of your head of development. So last question I have for you, just my listeners tend to be with smaller nonprofits. Can you give me like three actionable things that people can do right now to help their fundraising? Yeah. So I think the first I will focus on the board is and. I'm going to put two, these two things together because I want to give you three. Well, you, you can give me okay. more than three. Or so three one, three. I would, you know, one of the things I think so many organizations do, board, give, get. Mm-hmm. Board, give, get 10K. And you enter in that fiscal year and you kind of don't know, like, are they going to get their full 10? Because, like, part of it's a give. So I think more and more assessing sort of can you push your board members give up and ask for them to do less from the get. Not that you mm-hmm. don't want to bring in new names, but it will allow you to come into the fiscal year with like, okay, we have 90, 100% certainty that the board is going to overall contribute 25% of our budget, right? right? Whereas that get is still money that's called hustle money. Like your team still has to go after. Hustle money, I love that. So I think it's like really, you know, and I'm not one to say your board is your answer for everything, but can you push your board up slightly on the give side and reduce on the get side and doing some analysis on that? And I think what you'll often find is there's probably some outlier board members that you could actually significantly increase on the give side that start to allow you to look at the numbers and be like, wow, there's actually, you know, I did this exercise for an organization that's a $3.8 million organization. And we uncovered within two fiscal years, there's a hundred K that we could just get from five board members alone, right? There's a lot that's going to have to be done, but it's a lot less work than having to find five donors at 20 K. Right. So that's number one. I'll do that. Second one will be the, another board exercise is called a board annual commitment meeting. And it will allow you to do the first one. So probably should have started with the board annual commitment. Sitting down every year and talking to your board members, as I said before, they are your most important donors. And so saying like you have your worksheet, you share it with them in advance. Rhea, this is sort of what you've done for us this past year. It's been amazing. We really appreciate your support. You know, talking to Rhea, our 
fictional board member and saying, what are you able to do this year for us? We would love you to consider asking her and saying, we'd love you to consider a gift of $20,000 this year because it will allow us to continue to expand our work and do X, Y, and Z, something, right? It's not, it's not a restricted gift, but it's just actually talking to Rhea like she is a donor and tying it to the key programmatic work that your board knows so much about. But those meetings aren't solely about fundraising. Mm-hmm. So first, you're sort of talking about their give. The other thing I really like to focus on and say, Rhea, who are three people that you think you could introduce us to this year that have a potential to give a major gift to the organization. Maybe it's a corporation, maybe it's a foundation. I've been really on the kick of sort of building out major giving programs for organizations right now. But my point here is asking for three names. It's not like, who do you know, Rhea? And being a little more targeted. And if Rhea doesn't have answers, I'd be like, oh, well, Rhea, don't you know Sharon Smith? Isn't that someone that maybe we could consider? And Rhea's going to say, I don't think she's the right one, but hopefully Rhea says. But I actually think that... Jeff Brown would be someone good to talk to. I just saw him at a part, right? right? So you're giving Rhea something to sort of think about and generate and sort of it becomes a dialogue between the two of you. And then I'd sort of end on like this again, that's all the fundraising side of it, but you do need to make these board annual commitment meetings about the sort of full picture of being part of the board. What are the things that Rhea's concerned about? Like what are things that you just are like, you got to watch out for this this year organization XYZ so that it is a sort of comprehensive look at the organization and it doesn't feel like for the board member okay this is just my annual fundraising meeting so that they can get my gift so those are two do you want me to go for a third sure well I know you've said three is the magic number so I'm I'm gonna say three also I'm really appreciating talking about myself in the third person (laughs) (laughs) I mean I think the third one you know it is putting together a development plan I think that's super important I think that a development plan looks very different your first year as the director of development and as you're building that partnership with the ED, it's probably going to have to be much more comprehensive and a lot more of the looking back. And you should always look back. You should always analyze your data. I think, and I've done this myself, that, you know, once you're in the seat for a year or two, that it can become something that is easier to produce more sort of in like a bulleted outline form Mm -hmm. that doesn't take as much sort of time and energy. At the same time, you should always devote some space to sort of look back, think ahead, what's working, what's not, opportunities on the horizon. And, you know, right, is it a key milestone year for the organization? Well, let's not think about that this year. You should have been thinking about it two years before because are we celebrating or are we not? And so a development plan sort of forces you to have those conversations. And I actually think then it allows, to your point, when executive directors or CEOs are like, I just can't. My director of development is like terrible. You know, I think a lot of the time is that they haven't aligned what the key priorities are and Mm. a development plan forces you to do that. It also allows the development director to like assess is the CEO and ED a key partner in fundraising, you know, and if they're not, then that person is going to either have to choose to step up their own game and take on more of a role in it and work more directly with the board if possible, or they might have to decide this isn't the right fit for them and they're not going to be able to sort of move the needle in the way they wanted to. But I think having something to go back to is is really critical in your first few years of leading development departments. 
but I would say it's it's critical always, especially I would say especially also as you have a multi-layered or a bigger team that you know you're working with multiple revenue streams and that the whole team understands what the picture looks like and so that it's not just like you know foundations are working or institutional giving is working in their own vertical but they read the plan and understand what is the director of individual giving aiming at this year because you guys are all aiming at the total number that's your goal. It's yeah. not just your individual number. And so I think plans allow you to sort of have more of that collaboration within a team. I do have one last question. I totally lied. That's okay. So where do you stand on having a development committee of the board or not? Because I've heard arguments on both sides of this. Yeah. And obviously I've heard a lot of people say, well, we don't have a development committee because it's everybody's job. Yeah. And on the flip side, if nobody is directly responsible for it on the board, does it fall by the wayside? It's a really good question. I sadly don't have a like yes or no on it. I think what I would say is I would want to know about the board chair, right? Mm. So I think that's where I talk. Is your board chair modeling and enforcing <laughs> fundraising from their peers, right. right? So, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but right, you would love to have your board chair be a really significant giver to the organization and work with other board members to increase their giving and to tap mm-hmm. into their networks. I don't think that always happens. And if that doesn't happen, I think there needs to be something within the board and in some committee structure that has some focus on development. You know, I will say that both that I mentor and new classrooms, I did not have formal development committees, but worked with board members more sort of on a one-on-one basis. And in one of those organizations, we actually, what we were doing was focusing the board more around board development. And so like, while it wasn't a development committee, we saw it was critical for the board to sort of shift and become more of a fundraising board. And the number one way of doing that is bringing on new members. Mm -hmm. And so that was what we were focusing their energy on. Mm -hmm. And they weren't going to be as involved in sort of the day-to-day and the big sort of like decision we're making around fundraising strategy. I will say that organization also didn't have an event. And I do think events, and I don't necessarily, you you do have event committees and can be comprised of board or non-board members, but I think that that does play into whether you do a development committee or not. I also think there's a time when you could just like have, like if there's critical things that are happening for the organization and where revenue is going to scale really rapidly, or you're feeling like the board is moving from a founding board into that next phase that you could sort of do if you will, a pop-up development committee and see if it works or know that it's a moment in time and that like you need some additional minds around it. So in some ways, it's a personalized approach to it. Wish I had the like, here's the answer, but I I think you have to sort of look at all those factors. It depends. Yeah, I don't love that answer, but that's what it is. It is what it is. So where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about you or work with you? So I do have a website and I will be pushing it out to my network shortly. My company's name is Reyes Partners and the website is www.reyesparters.co.co. Domain name was already taken under .com. I know, isn't that the worst thing that was taken? So I didn't want to be a .net, so I went for the .co. I think that's fine. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You shared so much wisdom with us, and hopefully it'll help all of your fundraising efforts. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Ray. Bye. Bye.